0: More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You could get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void web prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Thank you for listening to this Billy Up Sports Podcast Network product. Some said we'd go Billy Up, so we made it our name and we're still here. Coming up on the Behind the Mic podcast, to continue a dynasty, sometimes, sometimes, the answers are right up under your nose, and you have no idea. But sometimes, history also has a way of repeating itself. You're behind the mic with Mike O'Neill Jr. All right, here we go. It's Tuesday. It's showtime, it's showtime, I'm kind of prepared, and I could have swore I had another page of notes, and I I don't know, I don't know where they are, but it's okay, I'm prepared anyway, so let's get with the show. NFL historians and lovers of sports history, welcome in, this show is for you, but if you already know this stuff, congratulations, congratulations, (laughs) but keep listening, please do, enjoy this show, Uh, don't talk. Uh, during the movie and please silence your phones anyway this show is for those who don't know as much about nfl history so we are here to do three things enlighten teach and learn it is the behind the mic podcast i'm your host michael neal jr and this show is presented by belly up sports at the belly up sports podcast network bellyupsports.com i will repeat it every single week go to that website buy the merch also that's that's a new one (laughs) go to the website click on it read the stories listen to the shows and all those shows including this one especially this one you can find on this long nice list of podcast ways to listen to shows okay you can listen to to the shows on spreaker which is our home base Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and if you like to watch, you're going to have shows that's on YouTube as well, so getting right to it, alright, so last week, we kind of started things off, and I I kind of think that I just a little bit shortchanged you with information, and I think I could have done a whole lot better, I I always think that there's something I probably left off, or left out, uh, but Look, we started off with just three teams. And I'm bouncing all over the place. I don't feel the need to do things right there in order. Look, we're going to have a whole different you know, list of three teams, uh, three dynasties that we're going to talk about today from three different eras, of course. Uh, but last week, it was about the Canton Bulldogs. Uh, we talked about how you know they were pretty much the first. Well, they were, not pretty much. They were the first NFL dynasty that was in the 1920s and then you moved on to the green bay packers of the 60s we know what happened there basically um with the penton bulldogs their team went away there were 22 teams in the league they were downsizing they cut 10 teams and despite their great success they did not have a team anymore okay so uh money money talks and then with the green bay packers you have a lot of different ways that dynasties end, and that's the, what we've been talking about. That's the meat of the conversation. And they got old. The Packers got old. It's, it's really that simple sometimes. Uh, they lost their coach, too, at the end uh, after they w- lo- uh, won that last Super Bowl, Super Bowl two back in 1967, the 67 Packers. You know, they had their coach that stepped down Vince Lombardi, who's the Super Bowl trophy bears his name for a reason. One of the greatest coaches in NFL history. And then, of course, we gave you an easy one. And that was the New England Patriots. You have not been paying attention over the past 20 years, even the last five or six years. You know what happened to New England. Tom Brady, he ended up. Moving on to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and they had to restart sometime. You can't have a quarterback in there that long, even though they probably could have gotten away with it. Um, I mean, the first year he was in Tampa, then he got some all-new parts, some some all-new receivers, new coach, new team, new colors, and they won the Super Bowl. How about that? Sometimes it just works that way. I'm going to give you another easy one. Some of them, you know what happened, and it's not that hard. So, like the Patriots last week, this is an easy one. So, not only do Cowboys fans know this, but football fans know in general how the Dallas Cowboys dynasty came to an end. And why. Jerry Jones. That's it. That's what it was. It was Jerry Jones. Uh, That, along with other factors, but... I can stop right there, but out of respect with those who don't know the details, I'll explain, and this will be somewhat brief. So we all know how they were built. Jimmy Johnson, he's hired by the new owner, Jerry Jones. They were college teammates in Arkansas. Jones buys the Cowboys and he fires Tom, uh, Tom Brady, not Tom Brady, Tom Landry. Jimmy Johnson comes in having won a national title with Miami and planning you know, another uh, and looking to turn things around in Dallas tom landry was the only cowboys coach in its history since 1960 and after 29 years the only head coach in that team's history had fallen on hard times and they had a terrible record johnson threw a legendary trade eventually traded their best player away if you don't already know about the herschel walker trade that was the one that turned they turned one great player to an actual team the cowboys had drafted Troy Aikman, they brought in Emmitt Smith, Michael Irvin was already there in 88, and they brought in Charles Haley a little bit later on. These are some of their Hall of Famers, okay? And I told you a couple of weeks ago while discussing draft history, Johnson made, Jimmy Johnson, made 51 trades in five years while he was in Dallas. They produced three Super Bowl champions. Yeah, Johnson was actually on the sideline for two of them, I understand that. But he won that third title while on his fishing boat. Yes, that's, that belonged to him. Of course, Jerry Jones wanted the credit. And after Jimmy Johnson and other current and former coaches on the staff on the Cowboys, you know, that were on the Cowboys staff at one point, like Dave Wannstedt, who was head coach of the Bears at the time, and North Turner, they ignored uh, Jerry Jones' toast during a party at the league meetings in Orlando. He got in his feelings. Mutual parting of ways is basically what it was amounted to. In other words, Johnson was you know, kind of slick-fired. Of course, uh, and I believe this, Jimmy John, uh, Jimmy Johnson, he said he wasn't going to stay that long. He stayed in Miami for five years. He had been in uh, Dallas for five years. I don't know if the next season was going to be his last or not. But look, I mean, was he going to stay in, in place much longer? Probably not, if you want to believe him. That's not how he operated anyway. He eventually ended up being the head coach of the Miami Dolphins. Not the same success, not even close. But what happened after those 95 Cowboys won Super Bowl 30, which was marked the end of their dynasty? Jimmy Johnson's replacement, Barry Switzer, was gone after four seasons. His final year with the Cowboys, they finished 6-10. and 10. And as far as the actual players are concerned, it was gradual. Yeah, they had gotten old, But there were some other little factors like free agency contributed a lot. You had Ken Norton Jr. He ended up with the San Francisco 49ers. Great linebacker for that Cowboys defense. Larry Brown, cornerback that won the MVP for catching two passes that were thrown directly to him. I mean, he was a pretty decent count cornerback. I I don't want to, you know, I don't want to, you know, Talk down on the man, but when he went to the Raiders, he disappeared, and then he disappeared from the league. That's what happened. But he ended up with the Raiders, signed a really big contract, as did Alvin Harper. Same thing, hocus pocus, poof, and he was gone. He was gone not only uh, from Dallas to, to Tampa Bay for big bucks as a receiver, he disappeared out of the league, didn't last long either. And these are just a couple of examples, but the ones that everybody cared about were the Hall of Famers, the triplets. Michael Irvin, Troy Aikman, and Emmitt Smith. In 1999, the Cowboys finished 8-8. And that was the last year that the triplets actually were together. Michael Irvin's career ended in the fifth game of the 99 season with the Philadelphia Eagles due to a spinal cord injury. And yeah, Eagles fans should have been really ashamed of themselves for cheering as they wheeled him out into the tunnel. That That was pretty bad. But after the 2000 season, Aikman he eventually had to retire due to concussions even though afterwards he had said that he had planned on trying to play anyway he could have played another what year or two or something like that but that wasn't in the stars for him to do and he's doing pretty good as a uh, commentator right now <laughs> he does very well evan smith would finish his career as an arizona cardinal in 2003 uh, that's something I'm still, the image of Emmett being in that uniform, I'm still trying to get that out of my head, and I just cannot. I cannot. But, you know, new Cowboys head coach at the time, Bill Parcells, yeah, the same Hall of Fame Giants coach. He wanted to go in a younger direction. I mean, can you blame him? So, the Cowboys, they've yet to win a Super Bowl since 95. Hmm. The Pittsburgh Steelers were just like the Green Bay Packers. You ask why did that dynasty go away well here's why they got old as well just like the packers they got old it wasn't any free agency that took away from the team their coach uh chuck Noll, he didn't leave or was fired by the owner none of that they simply got old sure you had some players that didn't finish with the team throughout the entire four years of super bowl wins in six years And we all know about their success. The 70s Steelers dynasty started back in 1969 with the hiring of Chuck Knoll and drafting of Mean Joe Green. And by 1979, the Steelers were making their fourth Super Bowl appearance in six years and they won their fourth that year. This team, this dynasty, had a laundry list of pro football Hall of Famers. And that's where you have to start, period. 10 pro football Hall of Famers, and that's not even including their head coach, Chuck Knoll, owner Dan Rooney and Super Scout Bill Nunn Jr. So what happened after that January 1980 win in the Rose Bowl in Pasadena against the uh, the, the upstart Los Angeles Rams? Well, 1980, that season they finished nine and seven. No playoffs. The next year, they were eight and eight in 1981. Joe Green ended up retiring after that season. Now the strike shortened season in 1982. They finished a respectable six and three, uh, but after that season ended early, uh, I think they lost to the. I think they got beat really bad, if I remember correctly. I think like 38 to 10 to the uh, to the Raiders, as a matter of fact. But Jack Ham, you know, one of those great linebackers, and Lynn Swan, of course, the the favorite wide receiver. They they retired. Swan retired early after only what eight years, and that was due to multiple concussions. Couldn't continue to do it. Um, Nineteen eighty three rolls around, ten and six. So Chuck Noll was getting them back to respectability, um, and then after that, Mel Brown, uh, Mel Blanc, and Terry Bradshaw ended up retiring. Of course, we all know what happened with Terry Bradshaw. Eighty three probably wouldn't have been his last year. I think he was in what his 14th season at that point. Of course, <laughs> we know what happened. He had a, I think he had elbow surgery, and his first game, he tears a tendon in his elbow. Of course, that famed draft in 1983, they could have had that replacement. I guess they couldn't resist this year <laughs> as they drafted, <laughs> uh, They drafted Cody Pickett. Uh, out of the university of pittsburgh and they could have had another pittsburgh alum who turned out to be a pro football hall of famer in dan marino but you know we know the direction that they went and uh, they said hey be, be better if you play somewhere else and so they selected gabriel rivera and if you don't know the story rivera ended up um god rest his soul now but uh he lived afterwards for years he Uh, was a really good defensive lineman coming out of Texas Tech and he had I think he was drunk one night on his way home from a bar or something like that and he went head first into another car and he was thrown from the car and he was paralyzed from the waist down and uh, you know that was the end of his career and he had started off pretty well but had Terry Bradshaw torn that tendon in his elbow and They had Dan Marino waiting in the wings. I still like those thoughts. (laughs) I really do. In 84, they actually reached the AFC Championship with a 9-7 record. They lost it. (laughs) They lost it to, guess who? Yeah, the Miami Dolphins and Dan Marino. And after that game, Jack Lambert would eventually retire. Now, 1984 was an interesting year for Franco Harris. After 12 years with the team he wanted a new contract okay he had a thousand and seven yards at the age of what 33 in this era of pro football that's pretty that was pretty good he ran for a thousand yards in 1983 and he held out because he wanted a little bit more money on that contract I think it was like around three hundred and eighty five thousand dollars was what he was going to be getting I think he wanted that or and or more so he held out training camp well they said probably not gonna happen so they cut they cut him and he was 34 by that time so an uh, interesting thing happened at the beginning that first week in 1984 with the Seattle Seahawks their leading running back Kurt Warner had a knee injury he was finished for the entire year they signed Franco for that money that he wanted he actually got around 550,000 between 550 and 600,000 dollars and all of this all of this him being 363 yards away from Jim Brown's all-time rushing record—that's that, that was bananas. But the Steelers proved right by letting Franco walk. The guy did not have it anymore. In only eight games, he gained 170 yards on 68 carries, like what, two and a half yard carry per, per, yards per carry. Chuck Knox—he had to cut it they look Franco they had a they had a talk and they mutually agreed to part ways and that was it that was it and they did okay the Steelers did okay without him um and like I said that proved to be Franco's last season he never played football again so and then uh you fast forward to 1987 John Starworth, he retired after that season and in 1988 Yet another one of those Hall of Famers, Mike Webster, who was a fifth-round draft pick in 1974 by the Steelers. That was his last year with Pittsburgh. He ended up playing two more seasons with the Kansas City Chiefs, and, of course, Chuck Noll would retire after the 93 season. Uh, Only three losing seasons in the 80s and four playoff appearances. That's not bad, but that was no more dynasty. that, that That part was over with. So, I mean... Pittsburgh, they were a great franchise, but those 70s teams, they were the pinnacle. And you had uh, two of the, uh, two. well, you have the steel curtain defense. So you ask, well, what happened with Ernie Holmes and Dwight White? Ernie Holmes, he actually played with Pittsburgh his entire career. I think he lasted till around 1980. And he ended up retiring. And the last two seasons, injuries kept him off the field. I think he started two games in two years or something like that. And then Ernie Holmes, he had weight problems, and uh, he ended up being traded to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in 1978. Didn't make the team, and he played what three games with New England, and he ended up retiring. So I mean, not every dynasty is gonna last, but hey, look, it's good why it last, right? It's good why to last well there's nothing new under the sun just started with the Dallas Cowboys at the beginning of this show and when Jerry Jones came in he let Tom Landry a legend go coming up next what if Jerry Jones took over the New England Patriots and eventually fired Bill Belichick well that happened back in 1962 Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky lucky in line at the deli I guess in my dentist's office Black Hills Energy knows your home is where your heart is, so they want you to be ready. It's all about keeping you safe, prepared, and making your home as energy efficient as possible. Everything from how to weatherize your home to how to stay safe during extreme weather. Be ready for anything. Go to blackhillsenergy.com teamready team ready. So as we have seen and should know, nothing lasts forever, especially in sports, players, coaches, ownership, stadiums, whether you're good, or even whether you're bad. It doesn't always last forever. Some will last a lifetime you know, for some people, Cleveland Browns fans. And then there's others. They got to see, you know, something good happen on the other end. Um, in the end, when your time is over, it's just over. And what whether you – um go out in glory or whether you, you know, go down in flames. And it's sometimes you're kind of like right there in between. You have players that retire well before things just go wrong. You know, Robert Smith, I mean he said he was a little bit injured there towards the end, but he finished on top as far as his performance. Um some people would love to be John Elway, win a Super Bowl and retire. And even though Peyton Manning could barely throw a football anymore He went out a Super Bowl winner. And then there's those like Chris Paul who may never win NBA finals, let alone play in one. Phoenix goes down. They got the brakes beat off of him this weekend. But uh, it's the same thing. I mean, Cleveland Browns fans, they should know this stuff. And the Cleveland Browns weren't always the bad Browns. And you talk about the playoff drought and how many quarterbacks they've had over the past, what, 15, 20 years and how many coaches they've had. And I mean, there was a time when Cleveland was the, the team. They were the dominant dynasty in the from the 40s going all the way through most of the 50s. Ten straight championship appearances. I mean, that's a lot. That is a lot championship appearances 1945 paul brown was hired by mickey mcbride who was the big money taxi guy and had his hand in a lot of other businesses and he named him brown was named the head coach the de facto gm and was given an ownership stake in a professional football team that ended up bearing his name the cleveland browns they dominated the aafc or the all america football conference go back and listen to those shows they were great winning four titles they went four for four okay now know this the nfl does not recognize the cleveland browns accomplishments in that four-year period only truthfully from 1950 on so that's when they entered the nfl i mean they dominated six straight years of the nfl as well they won three championships and played in six straight championships. Nobody else can really say that, can they? I don't think so. But in the end, this domination, that produced 14 Pro Football Hall of Famers. Among them, of course, the first, first, uh, or two of the first African-Americans to reintegrate the league were, or professional football anyway. Bill Willis and Marion Motley. The receivers, Dante Lavelli and Max Speedy. Lynn Ford, Lou Groza, Mike McCormick. Of course you know eventually you had some guys in the later years like jim brown and bobby mitchell paul warfield well Otto graham his quarterback had been with the browns since 1946 and all during all of those championship runs in 1954 graham had told paul brown that he was going to retire look coach i'm ready to go i mean i'm i, we, I don't have much more to prove i've played in nothing but championships ever since i've been here and Look, Coach, it's been a good run, but I think I'm going to th- – That's it, this is good for me. I'm, I'm okay. At the end of the year, they won the NFL championship. They did it. They did it again. 1955's training camp, though, the quarterbacks must have really stunk. Paul Brown goes back to Otto Graham and is like, look, please, can you please give me one more year? Please, Otto, just one more year. All right, Coach, cool. And he paid him. He, he Actually, Paul Brown made – Otto Graham, the highest-paid play- player in the league. One year, $25,000. Graham comes back. They won the championship again. Back-to-back, back, he goes back into retirement. And in his 10-year pro career, six years in the NFL. These are numbers for the six years in the NFL. Because those four years in the AAFC, let me make sure I have this record correct. I think they were 54-4. and 54-4, and four, that included an undefeated season. And then you go to the NFL, in six years, they were 57-13-1, and one, including nine and three in the playoffs. Cleveland won 81% of their games with Graham at quarterback. 16 years later, for you SpongeBob fans, Art Modell was the opposite of Mickey McBride. He purchases the Browns in 1961, and Modell is described as one who kind of wanted a little bit of shine, wanted a little, a little bit of spotlight, while McBride, he just handed everything over to Paul Brown. You do this football thing, I'll enjoy the games and show up and make sure that the checks are cut. Plus, of course, Brown had a ownership stake in, in the team as well, so things were working well for both guys, right? For all the great things that Paul Brown did and he accomplished and one day we'll do a story on Paul Brown and all the innovations that he made and everything great that he did with everything that he accomplished on the field and contributed to pro football, this man was not liked very much. That's not nothing new to any coach, but apparently there were a lot of players by 1960, 61, 62 that did not like Paul Brown. And the guy, all right, so you must understand that Paul Brown had no respect of persons. It didn't matter if you were a star or a backup. He was described by a book that I'm reading on Paul Brown, author Andrew O'Toole. He says that he treated all of his players the same, as subordinates. Do as I say, how I say it when I say it, and don't ask any questions. Now, when Jim Brown arrives on the scene, he got a welcome by Lynn Ford, all right? One of the Brown's veterans. And here's just a rundown of the examples of what Ford was telling Brown. Finishing plays, keep your mouth shut when he speaks, you run the plays how he tells you, and don't give any input on how to improve the play. Don't even correct the man when he's wrong. So basically, you're just there as a tool uh, to, to do uh, to do Paul Brown's bidding now has it had it worked to this point? Yes <laughs> it has worked they won a lot of ch- 10 straight championships and so when someone's won 10 straight championships well has has gone to 10 straight championships and has six championships to show for it I guess you could say it's not a whole lot you could tell some people. You know, it's like open up a window, you know, somebody's head as swelling. and crack a door open, man, because there's not enough room because it, nobody could tell this man how to how to run a football team. I mean, he was great as a high school coach and Massillion. Uh, uh, he was great as a college coach at Ohio State. He won their first national championship. He was their coach. He, and even at Great Lakes Military, uh, Great Lakes Naval Academy or whatnot, they were pretty good there, too. So everywhere the man went, they won. They won. And when you have someone that's, that's in that realm when it comes to winning, it's hard to tell somebody or break somebody from that, right? So understand that in all the years that Paul Brown had been the head coach uh, they, had, the Browns, had only suffered one losing season, and that was in 1956. They were five and seven, I believe. That's how you get to draft Jim Brown. You get to draft pretty high when you lose that many games. Um, in 1957 and 1958, the Browns did two things for the final time under Paul Brown. In 1957, they made their final championship appearance with Paul Brown in 1950 as him as coach. Okay. In 1958. That was their last playoff appearance under Paul Brown. The 1960s, they were kind of average. They won, what, eight games back-to-back seasons and had a couple of ties. They go eight, three, and one, something like that. And after a seven, six, and one year in 1962, Art Modell had already had enough, and apparently the fans and sports writers as well. So they kind of saw the writing was on the wall since Otto Graham had retired. And not only had Otto Graham retired, they had lost a lot of those great players. They had lost the Bill Willis's. Marion Molly was done, I believe, and by 1954, 55, I believe he played with the Pittsburgh Steelers and ended up having to retire. So th- there was not a whole lot, you know, those those older teams, they were, a lot of their, their guys were gone. Dante Lavelli, I believe, Speedy was gone, and Dante Lavelli, as a receiver, he was not playing as much. So they had to kind of try to replace people. You can only go so far, people get old, right? People slow down, right? So in those 1960s, it just wasn't the same as it was in the 40s and in the 50s. And you keep playing that long, just like we talk about, uh, I think I mentioned this with the basketball history that I kind of gave a little bit of a little bit of a spiel on yester, uh, last week, um, during last week's show, talking about the Pistons, talking about the Lakers, talking about the Bulls, talking about the the uh, the Boston Celtics. When you play that long, and LeBron James, when you when you play that long, and you play that many minutes, and go that deep into a season, year after year after year, and the Browns were doing that, it wears on you after a while, right? Well, that's exactly what happened to the Cleveland Browns and you have to be able to replace those guys more on that in a second so Modell and Paul Brown they already had a very icing relationship because when Modell had bought the Cleveland Browns he took most of Brown, uh, Paul Brown's power so you know Brown was respectful uh, was responsible that is for everything and that's the way he liked it he wanted the power to sign the players, to draft the players, to to be the the guy who's negotiating the tr- the contracts. Modell stripped him of that and wanted to be kept in the loop on everything else. Like I said, I believe that final straw was in 1962. Enter Bobby Mitchell. Bobby Mitchell was, as you know by now, he was a Hall of Fame running back. Uh, let's just call him a halfback. So he was a receiver and a running back. <laughs> Pretty good guy uh, on the field. So. Bobby Mitchell apparently from what I read last week he had some fumbling problems at one point there towards the end of his career with them and it kind of made him expendable and I believe everybody was expendable except for Otto Graham (laughs) and I think Jim Brown may have been the exact same you think he was not he he was uh, not replaceable okay so then there's Ernie Davis Ernie Davis Ended up being the top draft choice of the 1962 draft, but before we get to that point, Davis, who was the first African American to win the Heisman Trophy, and he was the running back for uh, for the Syracuse Orange, that was Paul Brown wanted Ernie Davis. I think Ernie Davis was coveted by many, many GMs and head coaches or whatnot, and for Paul Brown to try to pair Jim Brown. From Syracuse with Ernie Davis, a Hall of, uh, uh you know, Heisman Trophy winner from Syracuse. I mean, how much better would that have been? Problem is, turned out, uh, well, let's just put it this way: Paul Brown and George Preston Marshall of Washington were going to swap player for pick, but instead, it was agreed upon on the morning of the '62 draft that Washington would draft Ernie Davis and then trade him to cleveland for bobby mitchell straight up guess who didn't know that this deal was going down art modell guess how modell found out george preston marshall told him and the washington owner said to modell and i quote don't ever let that happen again you are the owner you own the franchise it's yours was he right of course he was Modell took over the negotiations, as a matter of fact, with Davis, with Ernie Davis, and paid him $80,000. And of course, Paul Brown was highly, highly upset. So yeah, that's what ended up happening. They took uh, Ernie Davis, Davis, and just remember this also, that season, that marked the last football team, which was Washington, to integrate. They were the only team in history that hadn't integrated to that point. The Washington football team, all due respect, to Washington Commanders. I got to get used to that. But George Preston Marshall didn't want any Negroes on his team, but he ended up trading and getting a couple of them, including Bobby Mitchell, who went on to continue to be a star for Washington. And on the other end, though, didn't work out as well for Davis. Davis, as it turned out, it, it was tragic. But, I mean, the man was sick, apparently, after the, I think it was like the college all-star game his neck was swollen he woke up one day and his neck was swollen whatever turned out he had leukemia which he eventually died from never really played any significant time at all for the cleveland browns uh the only appearance that he actually made on the field was during one preseason game which he got to run out onto the field and i think that was about it i don't even remember if he even got any snaps but that did not work out for paul brown even that that fell through the cracks, like seriously. And at the end of the 62 season, Paul Brown's reign as head coach was brought to an end. With six years left on his contract, Modell told Paul Brown, You have to step down. He could remain with Cleveland as a vice president to go along with other duties. Oh, did I mention that with Modell's purchase, Paul Brown's ownership stake was bought out, I think around $500,000 or something like that. And he still had stock in the team, though. That was about it. He was replaced by his own assistant, Blanton Collier, who he had lured, by, I think, lured from Kentucky, the University of Kentucky. Things weren't going too well. They weren't terrible, but they weren't that great either. But ended up being a pretty good head coach for the Cleveland Browns. Um, and it, obviously because they ended up winning the 1964 championship. <laughs> Cleveland won the championship again. Of course, that was the last time that Cleveland has even sniffed a championship. One thing I can't help, though, to think about, though, is that Paul Browns, his reign with the Cleveland Browns could have easily been extended. And this is where my other notes came from. So I'm kind of going just right off the seat of my pants. So this guy had access to just you know a few Hall of Famers, future Hall of Famers. He didn't see it at the time, and you had guys like Henry Jordan, who he traded in 1959 to Green Bay. In 1960, I think he had traded away Jim Marshall to the Minnesota Vikings. He had Lynn Dawson, who you know ended up shipping off to the Dallas Texans, who turned out you know these guys. He he said to, of uh Lynn Dawson, ah, I do remember this. So Lynn Dawson. Uh, paul brown and the head coach hank stram and i think stram had come from purdue that's where lynn dawson played his college ball at so paul brown had told stram that hey his arm is not as good as it was in college and you know this guy's just not as good as he was in college so here you have at it here's a trade you take him and you do what you want to and all Lynn Dawson did was win a, go to a couple of Super Bowls and win one. And he en- ends up in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. The quarterback he was looking for probably was Lynn Dawson. Maybe he was just, I mean, it was a little early for some of them. Even Doug Atkins, who ended up being, oh, I remember this story that Pat Summerall told on, I think the it was the movie 75 season. He said that there was a a, a story that someone belched, burped, during a meeting. I don't know how true this actually is, but Paul Brown cut him. And guess who they ended up being? Doug Atkins, who ended up being a Hall of Fame player for the Chicago Bears. I mean, you can't make this stuff up, can you? (laughs) I just remembered that. And of course, Henry Jordan, Willie Davis. Willie Davis was with the Cleveland Browns for the first two years of his career from 58 and 59. And he ended up getting traded away to the the green bay packers man i mean you just some stuff you know right over your head and you just missed out but it, i think it was just more so the way that he ran things that kind of you had the deterioration of talent to go along with your deterioration of your relationship with your team and your your new owner was not anywhere like the first two owners that you had because the second ownership group that bought the cleveland browns Let Paul Brown do what he wanted to do. You handle it, and you continue to win. It worked this long, 17 years later, you're out of here. Art Modell. And, uh, you know, it's it's just what it is. Hey, we got more coming up next week, so, you know, just stay tuned. More than just the dynasties that won all the championships, you have some other mini ones, some other great teams of the 60s and 70s and 80s and 90s. So we're gonna to get to those as well. So that's it. References, thanks to profootballreference.com, profootballhall also bostonsports.com highlighting the sports section. Franco Harris's career ended with the Seahawks by Alan Robertson of uh, AP Sports Writer. This is dated February 3rd of 2006. Also Bleacher Report, NFL history in brief, the rise and fall of seven NFL dynasties, written by Paul Augustine Jr. Dated January 12th, 2009. Also two books, my favorite, America's Game, the NFL at 100, co-written by Jerry Rice and Randy O. Williams, and also Paul Brown, the rise and fall and rise again of football's most innovative coach, written by Andrew O'Toole. This has been the Behind the Mic Podcast. I am your host, of course, Michael Neal Jr., and this show is presented by Belly of Sports, the Belly of Sports Podcast Network, bellyofsports.com Go to it, click on it, listen to to the shows, read the articles buy the merch and check us out on Spreaker, our home base also Apple Podcasts, Spotify Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, Stitcher iHeartRadio, YouTube tell all your friends and family about this show that's right I'll find your house if you don't, I'm out